This is why I sometimes think if the whole world simultaneously turned off Twitter, Facebook, and the news, like, I think we'd have a whole world of peace very, very quickly. Welcome to the show that the fact checkers warned you about. The one that debunks the mainstream narrative and gives you high signal, actionable content that helps you navigate the cloud world. It's Bomb Thrower TV with your host, Mark Jeffrey. So we're rolling. Anyway, we can start whenever you want. Um, are we on your show or are you on my show? <laughs> I believe I'm on your show. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Welcome, welcome yeah. to Bomb Thrower TV. Beautiful. Glad to be here. I noticed you're... So I never even knew you had a podcast, so I just subscribed to it the other day, and I'm like, okay, these are these are pretty good. Um, you, you're usually doing like 90-minute segments, aren't you? Yeah, so I... I started about two years ago. The, the listenership has gone down recently, honestly, I th- and I think that's just the function of the bear market. Just you know, people mm. sort of tapered off a little bit. Like in 2021, the podcast was really rocking. I was getting you know 20, 30, 40 thousand listens a show, right? Um, and yeah, it's, it's tapered off big time. I think um, yeah, probably seventy percent down from there. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get it up to episode 100, which is three more episodes, and then I'm gonna just leave it for a little bit. Um, I kind of need to, you know, I, I probably made the mistake of not monetizing it earlier, which is what I should have done. Um, right. So, you know, it's it's just, it's basically a drag on my time, you know, fucking around editing this and that for, for no real upside. And I, I just want to kind of spend a little bit more time just writing and um, actually looking for a, for a project to work on where I can actually sink my teeth into something um, that is not purely just content related. Interesting. So what kind of project are you looking for? Ideally, ideally a Bitcoin project. Um, I'm, I'm sort of scanning what's happening with mining in Southern America, uh, South America or Southern South America to be, to be precise. So sort of around the Paraguay region, there's some interesting stuff happening with, um, I spoke to some guys doing basically methane extraction from landfills and using that methane to, uh, run Bitcoin miners where the power is basically next to free. But on top of that, they're, they're getting fucking carbon credits too. So this came in the damn government, which is fantastic. So, um, um, it's, so that, uh, it, it's, that, that's similar to what, what great American mining. And I think Cathedra is going to do or was doing, they used to be, yeah. and then they've kind of gone their own way. Uh, but that was mm-hmm. off of uh, natural gas wellheads. Mm-hmm. Oil mm-hmm. Wells. Mm-hmm. This is you're talking about. This is coming off of landfill. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I didn't know this, but apparently, you know, when landfills are built, it's it, so there's landfills and there's tips. Tips are where they just dump everything. Landfills, they actually, um, you know, at least the more modern ones, they they build them in such a way that um, the methane that is produced from the landfill is sort of channeled. Um, and you can extract it and use it, basically. And which I didn't know that. Credits, yes, which are worth more than an FTT token these days. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> not that they should be, but you know. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're both just kind of minting stuff out of out of uh, thin air and um, ascribing a value to it. 
well, I mean, literally in this case, there's fucking they're pumping methane out of the ground, so thin air, and they're <laughs> ascribing a value to it. It's fucking madness, honestly. Do you see this this climate oh. cult, this climate hysteria? Do you think it's something that's crescendoing right now, or do you think it gets a lot? You know, it gets worse before it gets better, or it's it's already peaked. What do you? What, what's your sense on that? No, we're early days, man. I mean, hmm. there's a. I mean, there's good, you know, pushback. You know, there's the Alex Epstein's of the world, and there's you know, there's a lot of stuff. Um, you know, good content coming out, like from Bitcoiners, from conservatives and all that sort of stuff that are pushing back on, you know, the climate hysteria. And I think the the monkeys at the World Economic Forum, et cetera, don't do themselves any favors. But, you know, I think we're all sort of in our bubble a little bit. And when I kind of step out of that bubble, um, you know, when I've jumped on Instagram here and then see my old normie friends, like they, they still believe in, climate change and they still think that you know we're damaging the world somehow and all this sort of stuff and it's um yeah i i I think the there's still quite a bit of momentum behind that and it's just a function of like i mean my my generation grew up like with a whole thinking around that um particularly in australia i remember you know we had all the you know the the cleanup days and all that sort of stuff, which to be honest is good. Like it, you know, I don't want people to get me wrong. I think that, um, you know, keeping your environment clean is important. Like I'm, I'm here in Eastern Europe at the moment and people here are completely fucking uneducated about that stuff. Like to keep themselves warm in the winter, they just burn whatever they have on hand and they burn garbage most of the time. And the whole place smells like shit, man. It's fucking disgusting. Like you just smell plastic. Mm. Um, and you know, so, 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 you know, there there is a there is a you know, there is a moral duty to maintain cleanliness and look after your environment and all that sort of stuff. But as you say, there's there's a you know, the climate hysteria is a completely different thing. And the the problem is that that, that line's not clear, um, particularly with um, you know, millennials and younger. And you know, I'd I'd probably say I'm part of the older millennial crew, so I'm sort of in my mid thirties now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I grew up with one foot out of the digital realm and one foot in, um, I, I think the ones that are a little bit younger than me, they, they've never, you know, they never got dirt under their fingernails. Um, so they, they're unlikely to appreciate, you know, the, the proof of work or the stuff that goes on in the background in order to enable their, um, quality of life. Um, and they'll be most susceptible to, climate hysteria and that's now the generation that's coming into wealth basically um is you know my generation so it's yeah i, I it's a long way of saying i don't think we're at crescendo yet i think it's going to get worse before it gets better i think to your point that there's this lack of differentiation between pollution and climate mm-hmm. and that's that's mm-hmm. you know like who's going to argue against um, cleaning up the environment in terms of pollutants. I guess the problem mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is carbon is defined as a pollutant when it's mm-hmm. really just just a natural life cycle part of the ecosystem. Same with nitrogen and even methane. Totally. Right? Go ahead. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. I was agreeing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, um, but you know, the problem with climate hysteria is people are 
divorced from the costs of it. And, and this is why sometimes I wonder if maybe it's starting to peak now because um, the imbalances that were introduced, I mean, you could, you could argue when they all started, but let's say the COVID crisis really put a lot of this stuff into, into like a precarious, like phase transition of, of um, just things hitting their breaking point. So this, this, the cost, I call it the true cost of wokeness, right? They're, they're finding out what that is in Europe. You're in Europe this winter, right? Where people are burning stuff to stay warm. Um, you know, to your point about burning uh, garbage, uh, they're also um, not where you are, but in, in some places, I can't remember which country specifically, they're chopping down old growth forests here in Canada on the West Coast. They're running them across the country by rail. They're grinding them up into pellets on the East Coast. They're shipping them by tankers over to Europe, and then they're burning them for heat. And that's being called biomass and green energy, right? And that's possibly the most destructive, environmentally destructive way to heat your house. That Morons. You yeah. yeah yeah and so other than burn, other than burning plastic like it is other than here, burning yeah, plastic. yeah yeah and yeah. so um and so sometimes i think yeah this 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 climate religion has got a long way to go but when people are suddenly do, resorting to these lengths to keep them them and their families warm this winter not in 2030 not in 2040 but like you know because all of these things would have come to a head at some point but they're coming to a head a lot earlier than I think they would have. And so um, we're seeing even we're seeing companies break from the ranks. We're seeing uh, I think it was Vanguard uh, quit some ESG alliance yesterday. I saw the news come out and, and uh, you know, people are coming in saying, um, look, we have to. Uh, and there's some states. I mean, the Republican run states that are opening these inquiries into ESG mandates in in in, in pension funds and and other um, fiduciaries and and capital allocators. And so, it all just seems like um, it might still get worse before it gets better. That's for sure. But it just seems to me like the runway on this religion just got cut by a factor of two or three, like it, it went from two or three decades to like over the next five years, this is all going to fall apart. Possibly. I mean, possibly, I think, I mean, this, this is once again, the danger of being in our own bubble is like, I think we realize, you know, the, the stupidity of, you know, as you said, chopping wood from, you know, old growth and transporting it, all this sort of stuff. But, but I think, you know, when people are, panicking to heat themselves and all that sort of stuff they don't really care um and you know the, I, I mean like there was people like literally hands down losing their fucking jobs um and still wearing a mask like um <laughs> yeah so i don't know man like I, I don't have a lot of faith in um you know people kind of working working it out you know like i, I think they're just gonna i mean the, the easiest scapegoats are always like uh, big oil or you know it's the arabs or it's the russians and all that sort of stuff so 
that's what kind of tells me that we've probably got a way to go. But yeah, I mean, maybe five years, maybe it's this decade. I don't know, but because like, yeah, the, the young generation's dumb, uh, and the the people who technically are suffering the most, the poorer people, like over here, they don't know why. They they're just like like here in Macedonia, the the cost of heating has doubled, and they don't know why. They're, they're like, oh, you know, it's the it's the crooked politicians, and they they, they know that much. They don't know why. They don't know that it's like, um, you know, upstream from just the local crooked politicians, that it's actually a function of, uh, you know, policies and propaganda and stuff from the World Economic Forum, et cetera. Like, they don't, they don't see that far. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't that, – that's where, like, being on the ground here and being sort of outside of the bubble a little bit um, makes me think that, you know, p- people still are quite ignorant as to the um, – the call that I don't think a connection has been made between uh, climate hysteria and the rising cost of heating your house, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I think we've got a ways to go before that is realized. I mean, bubbles are very comfortable because they are, I, live, yeah. I live here in Toronto, one of the most liberal progressive cities in the world, I think. Um, and I like it. It's a great world-class city. Uh and Ontario is like an advanced, super advanced, you know, it could be a G20 nation unto itself. And, um, you know, there's a lot of green sentiment here about climate and and uh, fossil fuels are bad and nuclear is bad. And we're walking around here. We have no worries this winter. We're all warm and toasty and we have to be because this is Canada and it gets cold. But we're 60% nuclear energy in this province. And I don't think people realize that. I think if you stopped people on the street and you said, how much energy, how much electrical power do you think comes from nuclear in Ontario? They would probably, most of them say, most of our energy comes from Niagara Falls. And a lot of it does, but it's not 60%. And we've got some new, if you've been following Doomberg, I think he's a great follow on Substack. I mean, he's been covering this exhaustively. We've got a nuclear reactor that's slated to shut down in 2025, I think, the Pickering reactor. And uh, there's no plans to replace it. I mean, there was always sort of a plan to replace it, but now it's never materialized. And now there's all this, this animus towards fossil fuels and nuclear. So I could see Ontario being in six or seven years where Germany is this winter. It's like, oh, why why are we chopping down our birch trees in our front lawn to heat our houses when we used to have energy all over the place? Well, you shut down all the nuclear reactors and you won't turn them back on again. And that's why. I don't know mm-hmm. when you get to a point where people start to figure that out. Um, maybe yeah, well, I mean... Go ahead. I, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I don't know either. I mean... I've been traveling through Europe for the last couple of months and I must say like, you know, for, for all the, for all the perceived uh, past and chaos and everything like that, that, um, you know, America, et cetera, sort of uh, views in Europe too bad. Um, like, you know, we were in um, Prague for a couple of days and like abundance of food, like, you know, Everyone was warm, you know, car, like things are still busy and pumping. Like, um, you know, c- compared with LA, for example, I was in LA a little while back and LA is fucking 
empty. It's a complete fucking dump. It's a ghost town. There's nothing going on there. Whereas the supposed catastrophe in Europe, um, you walk through the streets, it's not really visible. Like, um, you know, Rome was fucking full. Like the, uh, you know, Positano in that area, Naples was full. Um, you know, we went up to the mountains in the Alps um, and it was fantastic. It was beautiful. Like the food is still, you know, relatively cheap. I mean, I, I will say like compared to three years ago when I was there last time, prices definitely have gone up, particularly for food. Food's probably been the biggest thing that's gone up. But like still, you know, accommodation wasn't too far off, you know, where it was like, um, you know, it, it, I don't know what it is about the, you know, Europeans and their resilience, but it seems like maybe, maybe you know, they've been through a couple of world wars, so they've kind of figured out, you know, how to have some sort of, you know, micro local microeconomies sort of functioning because, I mean, particularly in the Alpine regions, um, you know, the the north of Italy, like, dude, I, I was so impressed. Like, the food is still cheap, still absolutely fantastic, some of the best food I've had in my life. Um, and, you know, they're relatively immune. Like, they, they've got their own forestry industry, like, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, so you know, y yes, things have gone up, but, you know, I, I think maybe the, the larger cities are where the bigger problems are. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was in, I mean, I was in Berlin in September um, and, you know, it was starting to get cold. But, it, I mean, Berlin was as busy as I remember it, man. Like the cafes and the restaurant, everything was full. Everything was full. Like there, it wasn't like, um, it's not like, you know, the basically the Doombergs of the world sort of say, it's like, oh, Europe's fucked. You know, they're, they're, they're all screwed. Like it's pumping. Mm -hmm. Like, um and more, more pumping than what I've seen in, you know, while I was in America, um, which was, which was interesting. But as I said, like, you know, we're only really getting into the winter now. So, you know, it'll be interesting to sort of see what things are like, you know, in the winter there, like, you know, but I'm not going to be there to see it. So who knows? It's, it's interesting that, um, you know, how the narrative diverges from the reality, because you get that a lot. You, you, and, I mean, there's a couple of different points in here. So if you're paying attention to the news reports or even some, you know, some of the bloggers or whatever, you'd think that it's it's like apocalypse now in certain parts of the world. And then you get there and it's like everything seems normal. I remember during the SARS outbreak in 2002 or whenever it was here in Canada or in Toronto, um, I'd be looking at like CNN and, and the economist and all these like foreign media. We're talking about Toronto's a ghost town. It's, it's, it's like a zombie apocalypse there. It's, it's bedlam in the streets. It's panic. And everyone's walking around like normal, like it's pumping, as you would say, it was just totally normal. And everybody was just going on their day-to-day -day lives. But if you would pay attention to the the media reporting on it, this place was a smoking crater with a bunch of like dead bodies at the bottom of it. And, and then the one place you talked about, which isn't really widely reported as a disaster area, like Los Angeles is a ghost town from an eyewitness. So you have that separation of the, of even, even, even like the bloggers and the independent media talking about it. Um, I mean, I've got some cousins in Berlin and they, they, they're just going on their day-to-day -day lives. They, they have expressed, some concern around energy prices. Um, you know, so what's what's happening to energy prices in Canada 
it's they're going up here. We notice it. It's pronounced, but it's all business as usual. Life goes on. This is why I sometimes think like, you know, if if the whole world simultaneously like, um, I don't know, like uh, turned off Twitter, Facebook, and the news, like I think we'd have a whole lot of peace very, 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 very quickly. Like I think a lot of the problems that we have is just, you know, the this basically this interconnectedness that we have. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's evident all throughout history. It's like um, there's a good book by Douglas Murray called Madness of the Crowds. Oh, yeah, great one. And in the, yeah, it, and, and in the, I mean, he examines how, you know, like crowds basically have a mind of their own and they devolve, basically the, the intellect of the crowd devolves into the lowest common denominator. Um, and you just get this sort of, you know, level, this this level of madness. And, you know, what have we done with the internet and connectivity is we've basically created one big fucking global crowd Mm. Um, and all we have is noise. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you know, Ted Kaczynski was right. Like we just need the internet to collapse, um, you know, chop all, uh, connections off. Um, and, you know, maybe all of the climate hysteria, all of the, you know, fucking virus hysteria, all that sort of shit just disappears because like you, you even look at COVID, um, the only reason it succeeded in 2020 was that there was a level of connectivity between Twitter and Facebook that existed for the message to spread. Had that shit not been there, like, and, and you see, they tried it every year. They've been trying the fucking thing, you know, since, as you said, since SARS, like they've been trying to create a fucking mass pandemic, mass hysteria every fucking year. And the fire just didn't catch on. It only caught on in 2020 because I think, you know, it was a mixture of, you know, people were, people were primed and bored, like primed from the the political fiasco with Trump and everything like that going on in um in you know the the years preceding it and Trump's sort of use of Twitter and popularization of Twitter. Um and bored because you know nothing really had happened. You know, it was like everyone was just against Trump, against Trump, against Trump and there was not there was no other real enemy. Um and you know the as soon as something supposedly, you know, deadly came out of the fucking woodwork, the the hive mind of humanity, the 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 crowd and its madness, kind of exploded, and you know, here we are today. Honestly, like, I, I think we've had a century of moral decay in three years. Like, people are fucking more retarded, more dumb more morally bankrupt, more intellectually bankrupt, more socially bankrupt, more, you know, emotionally, psychologically damaged than, than mm. I remember we've ever been in my entire lifetime. And, you know, I mean, I, it's not like I've been long, alive for long, but, you know, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. So, so anyway, to, to sort of tie that back to the other point, it's like, you know, Maybe everyone just needs a fucking digital detox and, you know, we'll, a lot of the hysteria will just sort of die away on its own. That's, uh, you know, that's very um, on point. And it's funny how you described how like a century of moral decay happened in the last three years, because I always sort of went from the other, looked the other direction that the last three years pulled 
40 years of creeping totalitarianism forward from the future. So like your observation is like we compressed, you know, a century of past moral regression into three years. And I'm, I'm looking at it saying we pulled, you know, decades of future uh, creeping uh, dystopia into the present. So we're kind of like sucking the the worst elements of the past and the future mm-hmm. into the present mm-hmm. moment. And the lubricant for that is our social media. And, um, you know, there's a great book. I don't know if you've ever read it. Uh, Jaron Lanier, you know, 10 reasons to delete your social media accounts right now. And it's about how it, no, it really, yeah, it's a good book. There is a, a book you're in your thirties. So it was before your time. It's modeled on an earlier book by a guy named Jerry Mander, which was four arguments for the elimination of television. Great book. Um, you know, I read it in my student days when I was, you know, a left-wing progressive, like most students are. And, uh, Mm -hmm. but it was still a good book. It still captured, um, that's what I was in those days. That's not what the book was, but the book did capture what television was doing to the public mind and basically dumbing it down. And so Lanier's book talks about how social media optimizes for the poorest behaviors. And the reason it does is because of the, it's mainly the business model, the clicks, right? The advertising. Um, If it was a different business model than optimized for clicks, you would have a different outcome because what creates virality more than anything else are two emotions and those emotions are anger and fear and that's what gets people to share more than happiness or hope or anything like that i mean those can go viral but not nearly with the same frequency and degree as fear and anger do and so Mm -hmm. you have twitter you have um facebook this stuff is baked into your smartphone. So it's with you everywhere all the time. Totally. And then, yeah. and then people are just doom scrolling. Mm-hmm. And what happened with me anyway, I won't go on too much of a tangent on it, but like midway through the lockdowns, I was really at a low point with just negativity and pessimism. And I just thought, you know, the world was going full global communist and tyranny and dystopia. And I kind of had to force myself to snap out of it. And I did, um, I won't go into how I did it, but the, the gist of it was I had to really uh, start to self curate what I was taking in, in the news and social media and that sort of thing. So I had already been off of mainstream news for years. Like I just don't watch CNN. I don't watch CBC here in Canada. It's all state run agitprop really, but the social media stuff, I had to like really be self-aware of the doom scrolling and the hot takes. I'm still, I'm still an asshole on Twitter and I know I'm an asshole on Twitter and I try to be less of an asshole on Twitter. um, And I don't succeed as often as I'd like to. And so you kind of get caught up in the machine. And so, but I really had to make a conscious effort to say, I'm not going to obsess about the World Economic Forum controlling the world, because if I do, and I think they're going to pull it off, I'm just going to, I'm going to descend into this pit of hopelessness. So, which actually brings Mm -hmm. me to a point I was going to ask, you said you were talking about how people, you know, they don't see how, how downstream they are from these larger decisions that create these like climate inspired outcomes that make their lives miserable. How much 
responsibility do you think, like how much impetus is there coming out of Davos? Is it, I, I, I wrestle with the idea that they're opportunists, not drivers, and but they really do a good job of making themselves look like the drivers. And maybe they are. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, that's a very good question. And, um, and it, and, and it is a, it's, it's a tricky one. I mean, you know, I put my uh, entrepreneur hat on and understanding how hard it is to herd cats and acquire customers and build a business and sort of like, you know, achieve, a you know i mean an entrepreneur is looking to achieve his own conspiracy right yeah um, exactly good way to put it he's, cons- he's he's conspiring toward an end um and it's it's fucking hard man like it really is so you know you, you've got you've got these people who I, I really don't think the davos crowd is as capable intelligent um or hard working as the best entrepreneurs in the world um, so I think, you know, they're, they're trying to do something similar, which is they're herding cats and they're trying to like, you know, direct things, um, for them to actually pull that off. I think it's, it'd be quite difficult, but then again, you know, maybe, maybe the best, you know, potential entrepreneurs, all that sort of stuff, maybe they do actually go into those, uh, environments because that's where, you know, maximum leverage, uh, exists. And I mean, I have seen powerful people do stuff um, and get stuff like, uh, you know, whether it's small things like a table at the most exclusive, you know, restaurant or a room in the most exclusive hotel, you know, like money talks and, you know, power really does have a, um, you know, it's an attractor um, and it does open doors and, you know, you, you, you can you can influence things. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, I, I always fall back. It reminds me of the nature nurture question. It's like, you know, what are humans more nature or more nurture? And, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's always this indefinable blend of both. And, and I think it's the same sort of thing here. It's like, they're an indefinable blend of driver and opportunist uh, in the sense that they are driving at someone at something. Sorry. Everyone is always driving at something. We're all conspiring. Um, and, you know, a whole lot of shit happens along the way. Um, a bunch of it, you know, well outside of their control. Um, but then, you know, they allocate resources towards, as you said, making it look like it was them. Um, and, you know, they try and capitalize on all sorts of, you know, opportunities. I mean, you know, when you look at stuff like, you know, the the, the cringe that just comes out of the media, for example, um, y- you know, there's like agendas at play. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you you can't just assume that because there's an agenda at play, it's why it's all happened, right? It's, you know, you, you need to sort of understand that things are a little bit more complex than that. While there is agendas, um, a lot of sort of what happens, um, it, it is quite, there is a randomness to it. Like, I mean, you know, the, the timeline that we're on, like the fact that you've got a, you know, fucking Asperger's autistic entrepreneur who privately bought the, um, you know, the, the world's public square <laughs> um, while the, the other fucking Asperger's entrepreneur Zuckerberg, you know, his public square is falling apart and it's becoming a ghost town, um, you know, just full of mindless lemmings, NPCs and zombies. 
um, <laughs> with, um, you know, with fucking Kanye West wearing a fucking gimp suit and like, I don't know, man, like th- there's things happening that are just like so weird and so out of control that, you know, uh, it- it's just, it's not planned, you know, it's like there's, there is some plans, there is con- some conspiracies, but there's, there's a whole lot of, you know, weird shit that happens in between, which I don't think anyone um, bargains for. Yeah, my base case, my basic premise is we live in an out of control world. And we got mm-hmm. to where we are today because our one superpower is we're super adaptable. That's mm-hmm. that's our game. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what we know how to do. And my eyes tend to glaze over a lot of times when I when I hear a lot of like, you know, in the independent media, when something happens and they, the armchair geopoliticians come out and they say, well... Putin did this because he wants this and Merkel did this because she wanted this or whoever it is now. And Macron made this happen. I'm like, these people, they're scrambling from door to door. Like they don't know they're, they're flying Mm -hmm. by the seat of their pants. They're trying to push their own agendas. A lot of those agendas conflict out of that mishmash. I think there's a dynamic at play that, um, that creates its own incentive structures and kind of like, starts these flywheel effects that it almost looks like, okay, there's this grand overarching conspiracy, but these, these flywheel effects, they're like market forces and they tend to burn Mm -hmm. themselves out. Mm -hmm. Like who would have thought two, three years ago, who would have thought that we'd be sitting here talking about Facebook being a ghost town, but it is, you know, I log into Facebook and it's like tumbleweeds blowing through the place. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I haven't missed anything in this since the six months ago when I logged in. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. who would have thought that was even possible? I mean, just like the same time, there was a time when Yahoo seemed like Google is now. And you would think, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're the 800 pound gorilla for the rest of the internet era. And they weren't. So that's why, I mean, that kind of brings me back to why I think sometimes that this whole climate hysteria is closer to the end than it is the beginning or even the yeah, maybe. Point. And why I think, you know, the World Economic Forum, I mean, Klaus Schwab has been on about the fourth industrial revolution and the Great Reset for 40 years. Like, mm-hmm. he reminds me of this I won't say their name because I don't want to I don't want to slag them. But there was this Canadian band that was around for like 25 years, like and they just, like <laughs> you know, they just went nowhere. And then they finally had a hit like 20 years in. It's like, oh, they got a hit, you know, and that was like a lot of factor grants and a lot of government subsidies. And it was like, you know, if you shovel enough money into a mediocre band for a couple of decades, they'll come up with a hit. You know, that's almost what it feels like. The World Economic Forum did. I mean, yes, they're always influential, and there was a prestigious forum there. But they, he's been, he's been, he's been rattling on about this same, you know, jam for forty years, and then COVID hit, and it was like this is our moment, and they mm-hmm, just stepped mm-hmm. into it. They leaned into it, and they kind of hit it out of the ballpark. You know, when every world leader comes out of Davos chanting "Build Back Better" like a zombie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, then you kind of look like you're a, you're you're a James Bond level villain controlling an organization like Spectre that's everywhere. Yeah, you know, penetrating totally. the world's governments. Totally, totally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 
the 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 one thing and i and i've said this in you know the the book the uncommunist manifesto is like that you know what we're all fighting in many ways is entropy and we're all fighting a losing battle um because you know as much as you know w- whether it's facebook or google or any of these like world economic forum the united states government like you know i i've been on a major history binge this year and like you know the the ancient macedonians the romans uh the huns the the mongols um all of them like the greatest greatest powers uh have all succumbed to entropy um and sort of the 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 human emotional form of entropy is probably boredom and you know that there comes a point where you know hysterics just becomes boring and you know you can only uh freak people out so much that you know it's sort of like you know the the apathy sort of sets in um and no one really gives a fuck anymore and and that that's as you said that that's exactly what's happened with um with facebook and you know maybe to a large degree it's like all the social justice warriors just kind of get tired in the next couple of years of like you know banging the drum of um you know fighting the good fight and then you know may- maybe that chutzpa that that oomph that um that the world economic forum and these people sort of has kind of like fizzles out i don't know it's 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 going to be interesting to see um it's a uh, you know that i actually don't in in many ways i don't envy the the task they've set out to accomplish because you know they they need like never-ending resources to do it and they're sort of running out of time and running out of resources with which to do it yes i mean i'll come back let's i'll put a pin in that point but i will say i agree with what you were talking about that that this sort of um never-ending outrage will kind of fizzle itself out like just outrage as a culture but i have incorrectly called the top in peak outrage for about like five years now (laughs) right (laughs) i mean i i wrote a book on uh how to defend yourself from de-platform attacks and cancel culture um and it Mm -hmm. i won't say when it came out i'll first say i almost didn't release the book because i thought like this is all in the rearview mirror i thought i missed the top cancel culture used to be a thing and it kind of fizzled out and now it's no longer a thing. And so I almost didn't put the book out. Well, I, it was, it was in like February, 2020, I put the book out finally thinking, ah, I wrote it. I might as well put it out. And then COVID hit. And then all of like the cancel culture and D platform just went into the stratosphere. Um, You know, so I, I called the top, incorrectly too many times but it's sort of like uh you know can't go up forever can it i mean i think bitcoin's the only thing that can go up forever but cancel culture surely can't um but uh what was the point i said i wanted to i was joking about the bitcoin by the way but what was what was the mm-hmm. point i wanted to come back to uh, oh they're going to run out of resources yes yeah so because of this because the COVID crisis pulled so much future imbalance into the present. 
I actually think that if there was an agenda, if there was a creeping agenda, a plan to enslave the entire world in a technocratic dystopia with the social credit system and central bank digital currencies, I think they've added so much imbalance to the system that the system is going to give out before they can actually implement something like that. And I say that frequently, like in the newsletter and stuff, like central bank digital currencies, there's this quickening drumbeat to get those out, but nobody's really ready with anything. Because I think all of this, the global financial system, the bond bubble, the credit bubble, inflation, this is all coming to a head so quickly that I really don't think that even if there was an agenda, like a WEF-inspired technocracy or, or even just like governments wanting to go China-style social credit, I don't think they're going to have these systems ready in time, even if they had the will to try and ram them through. Yeah, I mean, it's a as we said at the outset, right? It's these are these are all big undertakings, and like you know, having having run businesses before, you know, trying to bring all of that together, you know, in a timely fashion, uh, in a way that works, and the the sort of the iterations that are required along the way to make sure that it works, it's a fucking big big project. It's a big deal. Um, and it's yeah. not as easy as like you know just coming up with the idea and and then voila it's you know it's done it's it's a it's a way bigger it's a way bigger mission than that i mean you talk about herding cats look at china where they probably is the one country in the world outside of north korea that they have absolute domination over the public and private will like what the government says goes in china Hundred mm-hmm. percent, no leeway. Look at the problems they're having trying to keep the system together, trying to keep people in compliance, which is actually getting a little looser every day. Uh, look at you know, with a hundred percent top-down centralized power in China, how much trouble they're having implementing that kind of a system. And you're telling me that even if even if the WEF and the G20 governments and the finance ministers and the central banks all got together and said, this is how it's going to go, that that's how it's going to go. I really don't see it happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great example of like the, the difficulty of uh, executing on a conspiracy. It's one thing to conspire. It's another thing to execute on a conspiracy. Um, And that's a, that's a much harder it's a much harder thing to do. And that, that's why in business, like, for example, you know, when you're, when you're running a business, it's like, you know, I always say anyone who's got an idea, like everyone's got a fucking idea, right? Um, it's very few can actually execute on the idea. And that's what really separates people. It's the, you know, it's the execution capacity. Um, and that's so rare, man. It's so fucking rare. It's not even funny. Um, that's, and, that's you know, more, more often than, yeah, it is, it is. And, and more often than not, the process of execution, um, like it's, it's kind of like, it reminds me of, you know, the whole Schrodinger's, um, is it Schrodinger or whatever it is, but, or the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? It's like, you know, you, you don't know if something is a, is a, a wave or a piece of matter, um, until you actually look at it. 
Oh wait, that, yeah, that's, that's I might be confusing it. Yeah, yeah, that's Schrodinger's thing, right? And yeah. um, and I think the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, sorry, is like you don't know if something is there, um, or you don't know the location or the energy status or something, you know, until you actually look at it, um, or the, whatever. The, so the, so Heisen, anyway. the Heisenberg uncertainty was you can know the trajectory and momentum of a of a particle or the location uh-huh. you can't know or the location both, which which, yeah, which exactly. makes sense because you're dealing at such finite scale right that it's like okay i want to know where it is but then you don't know what direction it's going because you're looking at that one point in time but if you want to know the speed and the direction it's going then you can't know where it is you only know mm-hmm. the direction and the speed and then the schrodinger's thing was like the thought experiment was it comes down to wave particle duality, right? The cat is both alive and dead until you look at it and the, and the quantum mm-hmm. collapses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so the thinking there is that um, as soon as you, uh, you, you, you have the system there and then as soon as you apply intent um, or action towards the system, you actually change the status of the system such that it's something else. So that way, you know, you, your your very attempt at executing the conspiracy changes the the board game in such a way that your initial uh, intent needs to also adapt and change. Um, and it's sort of like you you influence the thing that you wish to conspire in such a way that your conspiracy must also adapt as well. Um, and that's that's the tricky thing about executing anything is that um, you know the the shit changes. It's dynamic. Um, it reminds me of, uh, I read a fantastic book by a guy called Oswald Spengler, who was, a he was a early 1900s, um, philosopher, genius guy. And, and he talks about like the, the levels of life. And he says, I'm going to paraphrase here because it's been a while since I read the book, but you've kind of got like base life, which is, um, you know, the plants, and shit like that. And the, the plants are basically effectively like victims and receivers, you know, they, they don't go out and they don't uh, hunt food or anything like that. They just get the sunshine, they get the rain, like it's whatever comes to them. Right. Um, and then you sort of have the next level of life, which is the herbivores and the herbivores, the, the way they feed and subsist is they go and, you know, get plants. Now the plants, you know, I mean, you could say have some sort of defense mechanisms, you know, bitter, poison, whatever. But but by and large, the, the plant doesn't fight back when, you know, the, the herbivore is uh, acquiring it. But then you have what he calls like the highest form of being, the most moral uh, creature is the carnivore. Um, and the carnivore is moral because its prey is dynamic. Um, its prey actually does fight back. It runs, um, you know, it, it has tusks or whatever, like it, it's looking to defend itself. Um, and that's what makes the carnivore, you know, a, a more moral creature. Um, and then he points at humans as being the apex is because we actually not only uh, hunt um, herbivores, but we also hunt carnivores as well. So, so it's, um, you know, you're, you're playing with a dynamic prey. And, you know, when you look at, if you sort of take that lens and apply it to, uh, you know, the world and conspiracies, it's like, you have this dynamic prey, like the thing you're trying to conspire to, you know, evolve or move in a particular direction changes as you do it. Um, and you really have to be a, a, a powerful hunter, um, you know, with 
you know, all of the best, you know, reflexes and instincts and everything like that in order to, you know, do that well. And, you know, I guess the question is, you know, is the, um, are these institutions like the WEF, et cetera, you know, prime or capable at that level to, to do that? And this is where I, I don't think so. Yeah, I think that dynamic is self-reinforcing at all levels. Mm. So, I mean, mm. there, there's, there's this concept from a, from a book, a classic sort of satire book called "The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy" by Douglas Adams. I don't know. If Fantastic you know. book. Yeah. Fantastic book. I love well, that his, series. His concept of the uh, Recip River exclusion, right? The number whose value can be anything but itself, right? So it's it's the given that was like the heart of the the improbability drive but just the idea of um of a value that excludes itself is is how i look at these ideas of like all-encompassing conspiracies or or predictions of the future really and and i even take it to the level of you know whatever whatever the consensus view of the future is is the one uh path that that can't occur like it's never going to happen because there's too much consensus invested in in that happening, right? Um, like there was there was a there was a there was a a TV series many years ago called Flash Forward. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but the premise was everyone on humanity. An event happened, and everyone in humanity like sort of blacked out for a few seconds and they saw where they were going to be like 18 months in the future. And as I was watching this series, I, it occurred to me that future that everyone saw would actually be the one future that would be impossible to occur because there was too much foreknowledge of it. So all the actors, enough actors would be taking action with that mm -hmm. foreknowledge mm -hmm. that would preclude mm -hmm. that from ever happening. So um, and that same dynamic is what makes a conspiracy impossible. Yeah. Um, hold your thought. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's my idea there is that, um, no amount of foreknowledge or even power really can force a conspiracy about the future through, because like you said, we're all conspiring. So it's got to compete with everybody else's conspiracy and conspiracy, no one is yeah. ever going to get a hundred percent domination. Totally. Totally. I mean, you know, the, I'm, I'm reading a book on Alexander the Great, uh, at the moment again, and man, this, this guy, honestly, if there was anyone who deserves the title of the great it's this motherfucker like the the things he was able to accomplish but even in the end um you know after the most incredible sort of level of conquest uh ever known to man um you know there was there ended up being competing conspiracies in his own uh and under his under his domain um and you know, they ended up poisoning him and killing him. And, and, and he was the, the greatest of the great um, with people who genuinely, like, I mean, he, he would fucking be the first one across the bridge and over the wall. And, you know, his, his uh, soldiers and generals would be fucking, you know, clamoring over each other to fucking go and fight next to him. Um, 
it's like that was the level of dedication like <laughs> it's not like you know what happens today with leaders like nobody's gonna go take a fucking bullet for joe biden <laughs> like it ain't gonna <laughs> fucking happen bro um and he's and, not going to be clamoring over a wall first in a shooting war because he can't even ride a bike. But yeah, correct. He ain't fucking clamoring over anything. Um, and <laughs> the the thing is, um, you know, in that environment, um, you know, competing conspiracies emerge. Let alone the 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 environment of moral decay that we live in today. So it's like, you know. Yeah, th- this is where, you know, I, I I don't often buy into conspiracy theories, but you know, I, I will say there is there is definitely room to make um, educated guesses on the direction things are going, which don't necessarily have to arrive there by virtue of a conspiracy theory. They just arrive there by virtue of looking at the science, right? It's like, hey, you know, there's clouds above. Um, you know, I can smell moisture in the air. It's probably going to rain. Doesn't mean yeah, it's a fucking conspiracy. It's yeah, I put, put more. Yeah, more stock into dynamics than conspiracies, right? Like, totally. you yeah. know, there's there's this period we're in an environment where, um, you know, it pays to be woke. It pays to be socialist. It pays to be, you know, a climate hysteric. The system is optimized for that right now. And if you align with that direction, you will be uh you will experience outsized rewards. Right. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of the whole like this is just the way the system is hardwired at the moment. But it won't always be, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm reading the I'm reading the biography of Napoleon right now. And what what struck me about his life was that. I mean, he was always calculating and Machiavellian, uh, you know, to pick another figure, but he kind of like, it's not like he stumbled into that position, but he wasn't ordained to be the emperor of the world. He just kind of saw this mm-hmm. vacuum and walked into it. And um, and the other part of that, 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 um, I, that, that strikes me is that he made such an indelible mark on history. Um, and it was, it was 14 years was the length of his reign. That's not a long, that's not a huge amount of time really mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, from beginning mm-hmm. to end. And that was even after he came back from, um, from exile the first time. So, and so that's actually, you know, I look at people who are like, well, Klaus Schwab runs the world and, I don't think he does. I, he strikes me more as a guy who's sort of like pushed his organization into a vacuum. Yes. And even even their reign won't last forever. But then the other side of me, but the devil's advocate side of me says, yes, but, you know, uh, Stalin, uh, Bolshevism lasted 80 years in the Soviet Union. So it may not be permanent, but if it lasts 80 years and that that can overlay a huge chunk of your life, if not all of it. So it's no, no comfort that it's not permanent if you're in the middle of that. So um, totally. Yeah. That's the tricky thing. It's like our, our lives are too short for these, you know, uh, these mega political shifts to, um, to, to matter. Like, um, yeah, because a lot of them do take uh, multiple generations to sort of filter through civilization and, you know, we we have to live through a series of stupid seasons in order to be, you know, proven right or wrong in the end. 
I have a theory yet unproven that uh, it's a hope, I guess, more than a theory that because we have, because of the technology cycle now is compressing everything that we're, if all my worst fears were realized and the 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 G the developed world descended into global technocratic Marxism, um, it wouldn't last 80 years, right? The system would come unglued a lot faster than 80 years, maybe 20 tops, maybe more like, you know, who knows? It could be coming unglued right now as we speak, but it would just because of technology, the interconnectedness, the accelerated um, the accelerated speed of effects through the economy and, and the, the system that these would happen, these cycles would happen faster. I mean, you would think so. You would think so. I mean, it to tie that back to what we were talking about earlier, it's, it's you know, this is the thing about technology, right? It's that it's a, it's an amplifier. So in many ways, it is the very thing that puts us at risk of a technocratic Marxism but it's the very thing that may also inhibit technocratic Marxism to uh, to stand the test of time. You know what I mean? So it's the same. It, the thing that opens the door to the the devil is the same thing that kind of squashes the devil in the door, you know, in a way. Yeah, because um, I think it was um, it was Huxley who said, you know, if there's ever if we ever descend into a technocratic uh, dictatorship will never be able to get out of it. And I don't believe it, actually, because I think what we know in retrospect about central planning just not working. And I think today, the the drop-in replacement for central planning, the elixir is artificial intelligence with air quotes around it, because mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. don't believe in AI. I call it, um, I call it algorithmic imitation is all it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just it's just not gonna be capable of of running the economy. And so I actually think were it to happen, it to your point, it would it would create the very conditions that that bring about its undoing by bringing them mm-hmm. into existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one can only hope that we're not caught in the crosshairs for too long a period. That's the um that's gonna be the the challenging part. I mean, it's it's weird. So sometimes, I mean, you know, and I, I'm obviously a little bit younger than you, so you know, my my life circumstances are a little bit different. But you know, I'm kind of getting to the point where I do want to settle down, have a family, and all that sort of stuff. So, so you know, if you asked me five years ago, I would have been like, "Fuck yes, bring on the end, fucking let everything collapse, fucking you know, it's time for you know retribution and all that sort of shit." Um, you know, because you know, in many ways, we get used to the comforts. Um, that we have and the the absence of those comforts you know may be the antidote to the moral decay that we've sort of had um you know that that's you know part of what might bring us out of it um but you know then uh, as i said like you know now that i'm getting a little bit older and getting into a different stage in life now i'm like uh fuck, i don't really feel like fighting zombies and shit like that because i want to just fucking enjoy the balance of my life so yeah it's a uh, well- it's tricky. And you feel like that now, wait till you're married and have a kid, right? Mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. really not going to want the zombie apocalypse to hit once you have a child yeah. in your life. And 
politicians know this, like politicians will play on this, that like people want to keep their families safe. So tell them what's going to keep their families safe and they'll do whatever you want them to do to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think where people now and increasingly higher numbers where people are getting orange pilled and and losing uh, faith in the institutions and, and questioning the very legitimacy of these governments and and especially the mainstream media, I think is just one too many examples of we put our faith in these institutions and these and these uh, powers that be, you know, so to speak, to look after the interests of my family and my well-being. And they didn't come through every single mm-hmm. time. You know, they just served themselves. And so now in order to look after my family and to provide for my children, I have to take things into my own hands now. I have to do it myself. I can't rely on the savior state, as my friend Charles Hugh Smith always called it. You know, they're not there mm-hmm. anymore. So they may be in the past, but that's going away. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a fundamental erosion in, uh, you know, people's, I mean, it's weird. There's a, there's a, there's a simultaneous erosion in that, but as you said, like there's a, you know, in the vacuum that's being left in the erosion of traditional institutions, like these new globalist type institutions are trying to fill that vacuum, you know, the, the WEF, et cetera. And, you know, but, but the same, they're going to suffer the same fate. Um, you know, the question is what, um, what replaces the vacuum of the WEF and everything like that. And that's a, that's a trickier question. Um, you know, my guess is it's actually probably like you know the archetype of wealthy bitcoiners or something like that it's like this sort of new entrepreneurial rich um and this is where you know it really matters to have a um to have a rooting in sort of you know morality and ethics not just utilitarianism which is that that's where you know i don't like the people like Elon Musk and all that sort of stuff much because for them it's, um, you know, morality is a function of uh, utility. Um, whereas I think that's fundamentally flawed. Um, and you know, it's, it's why, uh, you know, the medieval times, for example, whether you look at, uh, the, the West or even, you know, an area that I have huge respect for is the, um, the Japanese East, not the Chinese East, but the Japanese East with the, with uh, Bushido and in the West, there was chivalry, like mm-hmm. the, the values and virtues that emerged out of both of those, um, was, was something that kept stability, uh, in society, in times of great turmoil, uh, and war and dispute and everything like that. It was times of great upheaval. Um, but those sort of moral virtues came first. It wasn't uh, utilitarian. In fact, you know they the the knights of the west and the samurai of the of the east they would look down on people who uh you know made everything about utility um mm-hmm. you know which is why the merchants were a lower class um than this sort of warrior class um so so i think i think about that a lot because you know today you know the the sort of the, there is no warrior code there is no more bushido or chivalry it's kind of like you know, much of that is dead today. Um, and I'm, I'm actually writing a book for, you know, with Bitcoin Magazine. Um, they're gonna they're gonna be the publisher, but it's called the Bushido of Bitcoin, and it's basically a an examination of um, the the ten or eleven traits that um, 
the Bitcoiners who are likely going to inherit the world, what, what they're going to need to embody uh, lest they become basically the the new basically parasitic elite class because you know we are going to have a disproportionate amount of the world's wealth you know in the coming i don't know decades or century um and you know there's there's a lot of fucking dumb kids in bitcoin honestly there's a lot of dumb kids there's a lot of fucking morons um that you know the there needs to be some sort of you know moral rooting and um you know a, a revival of a kind of code of ethics um so anyway i kind of went off on a tangent there but no no that's fine and i'm not going to keep you much longer i will ask you um i'll get you coordinates and stuff like that you can mention the uncommunist manifesto but are you in a position to run down those 10 moral attributes now or is that something you want to save for when the bitcoin magazine book comes out Let's do another show when we talk about that. Yeah, the Bushido of Bitcoin. We'll do a, we'll do a whole show about that because I okay. think that's um yeah. that's something I'm doing a lot of thinking on. Yeah. Okay. Good. So then, in that case, why don't um tell us a little bit? I mean, I hope by now everyone listening has gotten read the Uncommunist Manifesto. You wrote co-wrote that with Mark Moss. Uh, you run the Bitcoin Times magazine. Um. Tell us how we can keep in touch with you and what comes next. Well, you just told us what comes next, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. To, to what you said, if if anyone hasn't got the Uncommunist Manifesto yet, I think if they pick it up, depending on when this episode goes live, um, I think Amazon's still shipping out pretty quickly, and they'll have it for Christmas if they order it pretty quick. Um, just search Uncommunist Manifesto on on Amazon. And then, yeah, the my sort of pride and joy at the moment is uh, is a publication called the Bitcoin Times, which I do annually. It's a collection of six to seven essays from who I think are the best uh, thinkers in and around Bitcoin uh, in the world. So uh, we, I, I pick a theme for the year, and we write about the theme through a lens of Bitcoin and about Bitcoin through the lens of the t- theme. So, so this year it's called the Austrian edition. So we're looking at Bitcoin through the Austrian, the through the lens of the Austrian School of Economics, and you know, inverted the Austrian School of Economics through the lens of Bitcoin. And um, and I've got Seyfedean, um, I've got Michael Goldstein, who's you know one of the greatest uh, minds in Bitcoin, uh, probably influenced more people to get into Bitcoin than anyone else. Pierre Rashad, um, Rahim Tagizadegan, who's actually a student of Hans Hermann Hopper, direct student of him, and he's the He's the last uh, Austrian economist to be teaching in the direct Austrian tradition uh, in Austria. The guy's an absolute wealth of knowledge. So he's um, he wrote a piece for it. And Conrad Graf, who's one of the great uh, modern Austrian economists. Um, and, and, and Parker Lewis actually wrote a piece in there as well. He, he wrote the introduction, which is his own sort of uh, insight into uh, Bitcoin's relationship with Austrian economics. So, so that's sort of this year. Last year was a bit more of a, a sci-fi kind of future-oriented one. Uh, edition three was the Promethean edition, which um, which was a blend of really cool writers. So Jeff Booth, Jimmy Song, Eric Kaysen, things like that. So anyway, the, the long story short is it's, a, it's an annual publication and I do a collectible print of it um, and the collectible print means that there's 2100 of each edition and they're each uniquely numbered um, 
And yeah, people can buy that on bitcointimes.io. Um, it's only available for sats uh, in Bitcoin. And I think if they use your code, which was, I can't remember, was it was it bomb thrower? Yeah, it's bomb thrower. Yeah. 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 So if they use that code, you get 21,000 sats off the, um, the price. Nice. Nice touch. Okay, great. And where are you on Twitter? I don't know how active I, you are on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of active. I, I'm trying to like be less active, honestly. So I think I'm going to delete the app from my phone and just focus on um, just doing a couple threads per week. Like last week I did a – actually a couple of days ago I did a t- thread about privacy, anonymity, um, and I tagged Jordan Peterson who had actually caught his attention. So he oh, retweeted cool. it um, saying – you because know, his position on anonymity I think is a little bit stupid and naive. Um, right. So – yeah, it's. I mean, it's. He's got boomeritis in that sense. Like he just thinks that we need to somehow separate the anons from the real people. But it's like, it's fine to say it in theory, but in practice, the process of doing that actually brings about the stuff that he's warning about with digital IDs, etc. So, you know, he, he hasn't thought about it too well. So I kind of wrote a thread to, um, to you know, illuminate that, and it and, and it went viral. So, um, you know, I, I try and do threads that are helpful and you know, try and examine nuance um, around difficult topics. So if anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, there's that. Plus I do a bunch of shit posting, but as I said, I'm going to try and limit the shit posting next year and focus more on the threads. Yeah, I'm trying to do the same. And your handle looks to be Svetsky Writes on Twitter, right? Yes, Svetsky Writes. Yes, it's W-R-I-T-E-S, like writing. Yeah. Uh, Okay, Alex, it's been great. I appreciate this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, man.